And welcome back to a fresh episode of the Business Growth Show. I'm your host, Sam Dunning, co-owner over at webchoiceuk.com. And if I haven't yet, check out my weekly emails where I'm sharing actionable BT marketing and website tips, useful goodies, podcasts, and more. You can give it a shot over at businessgrowth.email. So joining me today, I've got Andrew Davies. Andrew's the CMO over at Paddle. Andrew, a warm welcome, sir. How are we doing? Thank you very, very much. Yes, not so warm because I'm outdoors, but otherwise it's good to be on this call. Thank you. Good man. I think this is uh, probably only one of the second or third people out of about 310 shows that's been outside. So fair play to you, sir. Braving the, the cool uk winter as we almost approach spring but we can see it if you're watching on video it's a nice blue background so good to have you here and we're going to be chatting exactly how everyone tuning in can build out their own gtm go-to-market strategy something we haven't talked about on the show for a while so looking forward to diving in as we rarely do andrew let's not beat about the bush first and foremost why is a go-to-market strategy why is it so important so there's lots of talk about product market fit, uh, making sure that you've got a product that matches the needs and expectations of a small group of customers to start with. Um, but building a software company is easier than ever before. The platforms you sit on top of, the infrastructure you sit on top of, and that allows you to build that minimum viable product fast and test it fast. In, an, in a world where you know everyone can do that, or a lot of people can build software companies, the ability to distribute, the ability to go to market becomes a competitive differentiator. Um, in a world where anybody can load up open open APIs, uh, open a- AIs, APIs, and build an AI company on top of ChatGPT, suddenly <laughs> it's how you take that to market, how you make sure it actually gets distributed to the people who need it. And so a go-to-market strategy is the set of channels and motions and, and strategy behind how you go meet that market and how you win revenue from them sustainably. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, makes sense. And we'll dive in shortly to your four-step process that you're going to share with us in the audience in a bit. But before we do, are there any common mistakes that you see, especially in the B2B or the software world, Andrew, that people tend to make when it comes to building out their GTM strategy? So I've been in B2B marketing for a long time at different uh, sizes and scales of business, um, including my own one that we built from kind of first dollar revenue up to, you know, hundreds of millions of revenue when we got acquired. And I think one of the biggest mistakes is thinking that marketing can be a one-trick pony. The problem with with any form of marketing, particularly if we look at the SaaS context, the B2B marketing context, marketing is a period is, is a, a process of reaching a ceiling through your existing tactic and then having to find new ways of breaking through that ceiling with a different channel a different approach a different message um, and so the process of experimentation in marketing as you scale is to find ceilings before they hit you um, and find a way around them to find that next ceiling so it might be that you know cadences of SDRs outreaching to target accounts is the first thing that helps you but mm. that's going to that's going to stop in its efficacy at some point in time you need to make sure you're building a, board, a broader bench of tactics uh, but before that causes you to stop growing i like that reference hitting ceilings and for anyone that perhaps doesn't understand that term what are we saying exactly when we're saying a ceiling 
Yeah, so um, let, let's just take a few different tactics. So if you are trying to um, go to market through an inbound strategy and SEO is one of your tactics, there will be a finite volume of people searching for those search terms. And when you've dominated those results, you've hit a ceiling. You, you're not going to get any more customers other than the new incremental people searching at that volume. Um, the same is you know, perhaps a ceiling of competition for certain terms that you're bidding on. Um, the ceiling might be the efficacy of investing in you know, SDRs, sales development reps to build outbound scripts or dial into customers. Um, mm. you know, it could be brand plays where the efficacy of investing in video content or show content or you know, in events, it hits a ceiling where you've, you've reached the audience that you can, you can reach through that method. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it makes sense. So, so essentially hitting a cap, like what is the limit of, I suppose, like you mentioned their demand that you could capture, whether that's organic search or Google Ads paid search or likewise what your addressable market can be hit with outbound sales, cold calling, cold email, etc. which uh, we can dig into in a bit when we get into tactics. Sure. So looking sure. forward to that. Yeah, go ahead. Well, I think there's there's two things that are really important that sit under the skin of those ceilings. Um, the first one is that as you scale, you might find some things that do work for a, a longer period of time than others, and they do work at a higher scale than others. And so in deciding which ceilings are there, it's, it's trying to find things that are going to be able to scale you through tens or hundreds of millions of revenue. Um, and that will be a broader bench of tactics, but there might be some things, you know, in an, in an outbound type sales motion, building field sales teams usually does get you to a high degree of scale. It's quite a high ceiling. The other thing that's really important here is as you try different tactics and you build a broader bench of things you're doing to go to market, consistency across those becomes really important. When you're right. trying few different things and experimenting actually they don't need to be that consistent because they're often seen in isolation by your target market you're trying a bit of seo you're trying a bit of ppc you're trying a bit of outbound um, as you get to a point of scale you've got to end up then making sure you build a brand to demand engine where all of your messages to your constituencies all of the the if you're preaching in the marketplace as well as the demand capture you're doing is lining up to the same company narrative so that people can actually move down your funnel themselves without that being something you've got to go and spend money on. Mm. Mm. Do you find, from your experience, do you find there's like a dollar cap where it gets to that tricky point, i.e. you can do the, the well-known plays, whether that is building an outbound team of SDRs, capturing some demand with SEO, capturing some demand with paid search. But do you find there comes a transition point, i.e. we hit X million per year, then we need to focus on really building our brand, creating new demand in the market, making people that aren't even solution aware that they need our offer, but building that trust. So when they do, we're the kind of go-to company. Um, yes, but it, it's a kind of, it, it depends on every company, their market size, who they're going after, what the competition looks like what the sure. what the deal value looks like so there's a couple of ways i think about this the first one is actually it's based on capital you've got available because if you've only got a very limited amount of capital to invest clearly for survival you'll be focusing almost all of that within this quarter next quarter demand generation demand capture you won't be spending much on long-term brand but if you have access to greater capital or you're able to take a longer term perspective it is, and it proves that in the data, but it's my fundamental belief that, that quality investments in brand reduce customer acquisition cost eternally, right? If you can invest in a very strong position, very strong affinity with your market, you're thereby reducing the cost of acquisition as you go in quarter for every quarter mm. there on out. 
And so one of the challenges with making too much of your investments within this quarter, next quarter on demand capture is that you pay the price in higher CAC every quarter on out. So that's what the balance is. And that comes down to how much capital you've got available, how confident your company and board is, how much you feel that confidence on product market fit and therefore can invest out of cycle. Um, and it also depends on the deal cycle of the customers and, and how long it takes to buy your product. Got it. Makes sense. So let's jump into to some of the tactics on how we can actually build out a GTM go-to-market strategy. Um, first and foremost, what's what is what's one of the first steps? Like if you're if you're building out a GTM, if you're a startup or you're a new business, like what are the first mm-hmm. considerations? So it sounds really obvious, but you've got to start with your customer and you've got to start with the ideal customer definition, the ICP. We talk about the ideal customer profile. Now Everybody thinks they're focused. Um, Now, I thought I was focused in my first business. We had a B2B personalization SaaS business. Um, We thought we were focused. And I can remember the time we went on on a company offsite, a company retreat with our management team. And we realized that we were selling the same kind of product to a bunch of different types of clients to solve different types of problems and that was really hurting us because we were probably only 50 staff at that point and therefore our product roadmap was being led by different types of customers the kind of sales people were hiring were depending on their background for different types of customers the value proposition and the customer success process we were running was different for different types of customers and so we weren't focused at all and so you know we went through the process of defining the ideal one of our customers we lost customers as a result who didn't fit it. We lost staff as a result who actually didn't support that decision. But we then went, so we defined enterprise uh, enterprise tech as our ICP. People who were, I think, over 2,000 staff, largely US-based uh, enterprise hardware or software. And as, right. as a result of that decision, we closed IBM, we closed SAP, we closed uh, Intel, um, we, you know, the Salesforce, the who's who in the enterprise tech zoo came on board as customers because we were able to put all of our wood behind the arrow of going after that one ideal customer profile. And there's, there's a huge amount of, of kind of uh, acceleration that comes into your business when everybody knows very explicitly who you're going after and why. So mm-hmm. that first point, I think, is understanding that customer, understanding them in great depth. We, we had a, a spreadsheet where we had 17 different criteria on every company we were going after and if you didn't tick yes to every one of those 17 criteria we wouldn't spend any dollars on servicing you or trying to meet you in our marketing because you didn't match our target account list Um, and so that's the level of specificity that i think is really important to get in play as you build confidence over that icp so you can make sure all your investments are focused on the right type of business yeah 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 for um for companies that are perhaps at a earlier stage (laughs) Where their where revenue is key, perhaps they've had yep. limited funding or they're bootstrapped even. Yep. Can you can you be that choosy, or do you have so, to accept what comes in? In a, in an early stage, um, and you know, CFOs might not want to agree with this. Um, <laughs> in an early stage, I think the learning you get from your first customers is probably more valuable than the revenue you get from them. And so, I don't think you should be too choosy because that's the process of learning who matches your. Well, who is your ideal customer? It's how much of, of a success they make out of out of your product. It's the value that they can play back to you. Um, I do see one one kind of strategy being used increasingly frequently in funded um, SaaS businesses is that they are using account based marketing ABM as right. a process of ideal customer choosing. So they'll run an ABM campaign into two or three different market segments as a way of getting early warning signs on which one of those are more likely to be their ideal customer. Okay. Okay. Um, 
And in terms of actually mapping out an ICP profile, we've we've had episodes mm-hmm. on this on the past, and mm-hmm. past guests have said things like find out which customers you enjoy working with, which you can bring the most value to, which problems yep. you can fix, which are the most yep. profitable, um, all those key points. Would you say it's much of a muchness or would you say there's any other kind of really important points when it comes to actually deciding who is the best fit client you want to go after all guns blazing? Yeah, so I think all of those are good questions. You know, who can we reach? Who gets the most value from us? Who can we take the most value off? Um, where there's least competition, those would all be kind of key indicators. Um, yep. I think the, the more interesting question for founders and, and go-to-market leaders is often, what should that size of market be? And this is where the question of focus comes in, because okay. it's too easy to think that you want it to be big, especially if you've right. got investors. They want to know there's a billion-dollar market opportunity. <laughs> and actually, I yeah. would much rather know in depth about a very small market opportunity where I know their fingerprint, I know everything about them, I know their, their dog's name, and I know how to serve them than know a little bit about a very wide market. And so the kind of rule of thumb I use, and I think it probably comes from Jeffrey Moore's book, Crossing the Chasm, the old tome about go to market, um, is that a market has to be, you know, it has to be big enough to matter, um, but it has to be small enough for you to win. And so the rule of thumb early stage, I think, is over the next 18 months, could we genuinely win more than 50% of this market? And Hmm. if, if you couldn't, then it's probably too big and you haven't defined it close enough. I like that. That's a new one for me. All right, let's let's push to the next step. We've talked about ideal client profile. What? Let's say we've determined that for now. Mm-hmm. What comes next? So, I, I'm not sure any of these stages kind of come sequentially. There are something we're always iterating on. Um, but the next thing to think about is your go-to-market fit. So you've got some form of ideal customer definition. You've got some form of hypothesis about who you're trying to serve, the type of customer in terms of the company they work for, the type of persona you're selling into. Um, Now it's about how do we reach them? So there are, you know, four or five main approaches that are pretty well documented um, with benchmarks Mm. around them, um, which would be a sales-led approach, which is where you're hiring sales development reps and sales reps and you're going after usually a named account list and uh you know marketing takes a a lesser role because it's all about getting the message right and the value prop right as you go and confront people um with your proposition the second one will be marketing led which is where you know you have that inbound strategy that hubspot and others were big proponents of where you do have sales reps but they're receiving inbound interest that's coming in via your marketing channels and then qualifying that and then selling to it um thirdly you'd have what's described as product-led growth or product-led uh, go-to-market, which is where your product is the lens by which you see customer acquisition, retention, and expansion. Um, and, you know, there are fantastic examples of that all over the shop, including, you know, the Figmas and the Miros and many tools we'll be using where we've adopted it for free often or in some form of freemium basis, and then it's spread with our, within our organization. Um, and then there's channel-led, um, which, you know, sometimes is seen as a little bit old school, Um, But many companies are using it to a great effect now where you've got channel partners who are either embedding your proposition, your your software, your your product within theirs or are resellers of your product. Um, And, you know, many technology agency partnerships work in that way. So those would be the four key. There are other ones as well. But those are the four ways of reaching your market. And as I said, there are good benchmarks. There are good playbooks around each one of them. And so it's getting an understanding on which one of those fits best. How does your customer buy? And, and how does your value proposition get best described so that it can be bought? Let me give you a scenario, Andrew. Mm-hmm. Um, let's say we've got a tech company 
B2B mm-hmm. tech. Let's say it's a SaaS company. Let's mm-hmm. say we've we've got a bit of funding. So maybe we've mm-hmm. we've had, I don't know, a round of a million or so funding in the bank. And we have a market that's got actual demand. So we're not a new category. We're yep. a new offer, yep. but there is we're in an established category, i.e., people know our solution exists, but they might not know our yep. brand. Yep. What do you think is the best initial route to market in that scenario? So one of, the, one of the ways of answering that would be to think about time frame and patience and capital. Um, because if the players in that market are largely sales-led, taking that more old-school approach of selling software via salespeople, mm-hmm. probably the most strategically smart thing to do is to spend the time and capital in investing in a product-led approach because it's very, different. it's very difficult to defend against that as a large enterprise. So if you are paying bag-carrying sales reps to go out and go to events and sit on Zoom calls and travel to cities to sell what you're, what you're offering, and a competitor comes in with a similar value prop and you are able to try it for free without any sales calls whatsoever, um, and then upsell to you know a couple of you know hundred dollars a month or whatever in order to you know to start using all the full features, it is mm. incredibly difficult to defend against that as an incumbent. So it's strategically very is what many many companies are attacking incumbent industries with. But your question was was less about what would be good over time. It was what would be the first thing to try. And often, honestly, the first thing to try is that sales led approach because that's how you get answers very very quickly. So getting into a sales conversation, even if that isn't how you want to scale, getting into a customer discovery conversation, it doesn't even have to be a sales conversation, of showing them what you've got, asking them how they'd use it, asking them how they they solve that problem currently and what they'd pay for it is usually a very, very quick feedback loop in the very early stages. It's so true. Um, Like, it, it is an old playbook, but it's still played very much, I feel. Um, that's why I wanted to get your opinion on it, really, um, in terms of like the predictable revenue model. Mm-hmm. Set up a software company, B2B, get a team of SDRs, go to market. Mm-hmm. Just seems yeah. to be the playbook. Do you think there's any flaws in that, though? Um, do you think companies, especially B2B yeah. SaaS, do you think they overinvest in outbound? Because I, I, for one, certainly think a lot of companies do before mm-hmm. they even capture demand that's out there to be caught inbound. Obviously, mm-hmm. I'm going to say that because... I work every day with websites and SEO and paid search, but so I am biased. I don't, don't defend yep. that, but I've, I know the outbound motion too. Yeah. So I think there is a huge amount of um, market commentary about the rise of product led growth. And so I, you know, although many, most companies would still in the, in the SaaS space be using sales led as their first go to market. Um, I do think there is a huge amount of, of, of capital chasing down opportunities where they are willing to be more patient to build a really quality product. So if I was starting a SaaS business today, actually, I would be using sales led as a process of testing the proposition, but I'd be wanting to rest on building a product led route to market because there's a bunch of, um, there's a bunch of research around this. Some of it conflicts, um, but usually the revenue per employer employee is higher in a product-led motion. Normally, the customer acquisition cost is lower in a product-led motion. And certainly, the ability to build an audience around free versions of your product, which you can then upsell to, is greater. Um, And so I think it's a stronger business model over time, um, Mm. but it has to be used in the right way. So, you know, if I was doing it right now and setting up a business right now, I'd want to go for that product-led business. What what, I've got a, um, you know, I raise money from Notion Capital based up in London. They invest in SaaS businesses across Europe. And Echasso, one of the, when the investment partners there was we were talking about product-led growth and she exclusively invests in 
product-led companies. And one of the reasons she does that is because she feels she can get a much better read of their value proposition because it's all open. You can go and try the product. And her comment to me was something like, you know, any founder worth his salt uh, or her salt can go to market and, you know, get a million of ARR by being a good salesperson, even if those companies never use the product or get value from it. And I want to invest in, this is her words, I want to invest in companies where there's, there's massive transformational value in the usage of the product. Therefore, I only want to bet on products I can see, understand, see the usage data on, rather than it be reliant on a couple of very good founder salespeople. So I think you know, mm. that would be one thing that I, I do believe the, the scrutiny that the customers give and the market gives on something that is available for them to try immediately usually gives a better product experience overall. Are you tired of the competition stealing your potential clients and website traffic just because they rank higher than you on Google for the main services or products you offer? Or maybe you're already investing in SEO or marketing, but your website's failing to convert your hard-earned visitors into a steady flow of qualified sales leads. Or perhaps you already work with a web or SEO agency, but they're just not getting you the results they promised. Let's fix that. Get in touch with us over at webchoiceuk.com. That's webchoiceuk.com. Mention the podcast and set up a call with Sam to see if we can help you with results today. Is That's an interesting point. Isn't being PLG product-led growth, though, so if you start with a freemium trial... Is that not a high risk if you've only got a bit of funding? Because we know that only a small percentage of those people that take that free trial, I don't know, what, what's, is there like a typical amount? Is it like 5% that convert into paying customers? I don't know what the industry yep. standard is. Something yep. like that. Something um, there, yeah. yep. Isn't that like really risky, especially if you're trying to convince a board of investors that might not be on the same page um, mm. and the rest of you, maybe your founding team, whoever it is, yep. and say, look, 5% of these customers might turn into paying customers. Let's, let's go full steam ahead. Yeah, wholeheartedly. And I'm not a purist on this. Um, it will depend on your circumstance, your backers, your board, what you're selling, you know, some complicated sure. value propositions. They need a sales rep to talk it through with someone for them to understand it. If you're selling into a buying committee, it's tough for, a di- for multiple people on a buying committee to buy a product-led business because no one's there to juggle the conversations and express different types of value to different people. Um, so yeah, I, th- I don't think it's a one-size-fits-all. I do think that there are significant strengths um, to product-led in the go-to-market, but you definitely usually need more capital capital and you need more time do you think most the majority of SaaS businesses will be product-led in say the next five ten years um i mean you know the business that i'm cmo of paddle most of its clients three thousand or so are product-led businesses um because we help them solve a bunch of those problems so i'm a little bit biased in this in this regard um but we are seeing kind of entrance into that go-to-market model from a few places. We are seeing businesses that are starting as product-led from the very beginning because that's their Mm. process of getting early adopters, even if they're not paying, and testing a product and then going to market that route. Um, We are also seeing large larger businesses want to go down market for competitive reasons they're wanting to defend against people who are launching product-led businesses and therefore are launching product-led experiments alongside large sales teams to try and pick up that early market Um, and then the other form of going down market is to serve smaller businesses perhaps you know it doesn't you can't afford a sales rep 
um, when you're selling a 10K deal value. So if you want to sell to smaller businesses, you've got to have a different market motion, marketing-led or product-led or channel-led in order to afford it. Hmm. Understood. Understood. I Yeah, in terms of being sales-led, I certainly like the idea of starting those initial conversations, understanding what, what prospects think about the offer, understanding the problems that they're facing, mm-hmm. and really getting that live feedback loop. Um, it's so important in marketing, business in general. Um, in terms of if you do go for more of a marketing-led route, are there channels that you typically tend to recommend for, let's say, B2B SaaS, B2B tech companies? Yeah, I mean, this would be your classic inbound funnel where you're doing some form of, of content um, and you know, you're running some form of funnel where people can 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 qualify themselves in uh, and score themselves against you know propensity to buy and then you're reaching out to them with some form of inside sales to convert them um you know i i think there's a few things that are important to note here firstly each of these approaches has a rough kind of average deal size range that it can support and a marketing you know led approach can support a smaller deal size than a sales led approach because you don't have expensive commission sales people trying to close each deal um and so that's that's one you know angle the other part of of a marketing uh, marketing led go to market is often you end up building lead magnets or tools that are separate or or kind of alongside your core product value proposition think website grader from hubspot in the early days um, in order to get those lead lists and get that inbound attention for you then to try and convert um, into 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 customers yeah 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 no, that's that's all true um channel led we've not mm-hmm. talked about that much on the on the show at all really mm-hmm. um I know you mentioned it's kind of resellers that are perhaps embedded and using your offer or partners that are reselling. Mm-hmm. Um, is that something that most software companies can get involved in or tech companies can get involved in or is it quite limited from your experience? Because I've not had a lot of hands-on experience with that. Yeah, so if you can do it well and scale, it can be incredibly helpful to your 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 PL because you don't end up having to fund what can be a very expensive sales ad motion. Someone else funds that yeah. for you. So you're basically taking less margin and giving away a bunch of sales commission in effect to an external partner who's doing that. Um, and you know, the kind of big scaled examples of this would be things like marketing service providers, where they'd be providing consulting and implementation and configuration services on top of email installs and CRM installs and other forms of data transformation. Um, but then you, you have loads of examples of this happening in in smaller ways too a friend of mine read, ran marketing at a, a creative tools company and you know they would build you know the the kind of adobe after effects competitors for you know, very very um top-end film production and yep. most of their go-to-market was via channel partners who were doing other elements of that value chain um but just didn't do the software piece and all their go-to-market was funded um by these channel partners who would sponsor the events and invite them along or sponsor the the conferences and invite them along so hmm. the, the key here is are your interests entirely aligned with a channel partner and finding someone where you're not trying to change their business model, you're not trying to change how they go to market, you're just bringing them extra revenue in form of a referral commission or similar. If you can find those people and you're thoroughly aligned, then I, I would press go on it. The trouble is finding them can be a bit like death by a thousand cocktails. You're spending a lot of time understanding different people's businesses and value chains before you really know um, whether they are aligned with you or not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, we've just started um, like our own business. We just started trying to find, build out our referral partners, which is a bit different, I believe, more mm-hmm. complementary companies that are perhaps 
they might get intros or they might have requirements for what we do and we might have requirements for what they do we don't do it in-house so that kind of thing yeah. is that a bit different yeah but if you if you can make that if you can make that scale and find a bunch of companies that have that same partner custom and that, that ideal partner profile then you can yeah. scale that route to market to, to give you kind of a, an example that didn't work at idio we tried to sell our personalization technology via marketing agencies in london and i went and had conversations with all of them and they absolutely loved what we did and we right. were included in a bunch of big pitches and i remember a top agency i won't name them um including us in a pitch for them to win the mini account the car company and we were super excited by this until I found I didn't hear from them for two months, Doug, and found they'd won the account and never come back to us because we were okay. just being used as pitch candy. We were something really clever and really interesting that was helpful to them show their innovation. But it was just against their core business model for a whole bunch of their ad agency revenue to go out the door on a license for a technology product to support some of what they were offering. And so our interests were just misaligned. And so you've, that, that's what I mean about the alignment. You've got to make sure that you know the partnership you've built helps both partners equally. Yeah, sound advice. All right, that's that's the routes to market. What have we what have we got up next? <laughs> so we've got a few things we can. I know we don't have too much time. We can quickly touch on them, and you can dig wherever you think sure, it, sure. is useful. Um, firstly, you know, then we come to messaging. This is something that I love to talk about. Could talk about all day long. Um, mm -hmm. Do you really have a message that matters? I've uh, you know, in my career alongside a couple of the companies I've been working with, I've had the privilege of being an advisor um, for probably 15 or 20 SaaS businesses, mostly UK-based B2B in their kind of Series B, Series C go-to-market. And often the least optimized piece of their demand generation engine has been their message. They're trying campaigns and they're trying new forms of PPC and trying new forms of scoring and trying new tactics and channels. But Actually, the core message is what's letting them down. And so what I mean by this is, do you have an overarching narrative for the business that is understandable, something that reframes in the customer's mind what you do and the problems they face and aligns kind of the solution you offer in a way that gives them massive value? We can talk about some examples of that if it's useful. And then are you able to break that down into you know, the unfair advantage that you carry in your value proposition so that every touch point that you have with the prospect um, is reaffirming that message, that overarching narrative while describing your product's uh, unique value proposition. So it's about positioning. What is the collective set of options they have? Your differentiation within that collective set? How are you better and unique? Um, and then also this, this reframe that you're trying to get the customer to have. If they look at the problem from your lens, then you're the natural solution. And so this is a, a battlefield for the mind, right? This is helping them see things in the way you see things. Um, and your differentiation is a differentiated point of view on the future. Um, so yeah, the message is the next thing that really does need to be optimized. Yeah, I like this conversation. I'm much like you. I could talk about this stuff all day. Now, in terms of differentiation, chances are, if you're in a, if you're in a market that's you're competing, I don't know, let's say you're in the CRM space, Yep. There's tons and tons and tons of CRM, for example. Do yep. you really have to be super different if you're coming into a mature sector, i.e. there's have to be a vastly different feature, there's have to be a, for a new uh, niche in terms of the industry that you serve, or do you have to have some brand new problem that you're fixing? Do you have to have that to, be, to differentiate yourself? Is that crucial when it comes to both um, positioning, messaging, and go-to-market? 
I think it depends on whether you want an outsized outcome or not. And if you do, then yes, I do think it's essential. Um, you know, the, the core essence of strategy is choices and saying no to some things and yes to things. And the question that sits behind that is where do we play and why do we win? And I think answering those questions in a differentiated way does set your entire team up for success. And so, you know, okay, let's take another big industry. So we sold our business to a, a, a company that was a big CMS. So a big content management system, EpiServer. Yep. Um, and then we went and bought a couple of other businesses, including Optimizely. So we're in a very um, old space, enterprise content management system, enterprise commerce management. But we had a bunch of capabilities through acquisitions, including my business, that were interesting around personalization, dynamic content, experimentation, and A-B testing. And so our where we play and why we win was that Yes, we could do massive, you know, international brands in terms of their full, you know, e-commerce platform and content management system. But our heartbeat was one of experimentation. And having experimentation products at the core of that CMS meant that we were differentiated in the market because, you know, that classic misattributed phrase for Darwin, um, you know, it's not the strongest or the fastest that survive. It's those that are most responsive and adaptable to change. And in a market where COVID suddenly hit after we did that acquisition and then the market changed dramatically, suddenly being responsive and being able to roll out new versions of your copy and testing which ones worked and rolling out new digital experiences in different languages. It was the experimentation and personalization that became the differentiation around the enterprise content management, which is a very boring incumbent industry. So yes, I do think it's essential and I do think it's something you've got to um, stop and ask yourself as a, as a senior leader in, in a business so that you can arm your teams with that differentiation that'll help them win. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you mentioned at the start, you were talking about things like when it comes to messaging, it often falls short when you're actually explaining or sharing what you do, problems that your prospects might face and and where you stand different. Um, do you think there's, when it comes to message, what are your thoughts on where many companies get this wrong and what they should do instead? Mm-hmm. Um so I like building off frameworks here. There are lots of good frameworks that you can use to walk through your own journey of what your message should be. Um, Andy Raskin with his kind of, he calls it you know, the, the ultimate sales deck um, framework, um, which is all about uh, kind of setting this ideal future for the customer where they should mm. be, making sure they're a hero on their journey, bit of the hero's journey kind of framework in there too. Um, yep. If we, if we think about challenger sale another framework that talks about the reframe that you you go in and you try and build trust with someone with some unique insight and then mm. actually you 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 kind of reframe them to think about the problem in a different way the problem behind the problem and then you drown them rationally with facts about how bad it is and then help give them a solution um you know there are you know, corporate visions tim ristra has a, a great approach on kind of asking the three whys why change why now why your company and again it's digging for the problem underneath the problem so i think there are a few things that are common among all of these. The first thing is that there's a definition of this preferred future that we want to go after. And I do think that's some that's what's where many companies fall down. They don't actually have a compelling vision of where that customer should be, where that prospect should be, if all mm. of these things went right. And they don't have the cost of that going wrong. Um, the biggest, the biggest uh, reason for losing a deal is losing to the status quo. It's not losing yep. to a competitor. It's losing to what they're currently doing. And so as part of that process, you've got to establish why the status quo is untenable, is unsafe, is costly. Um, and and th- then part of that journey is then helping reframe. So firstly, is there a preferred future? Is, is the status quo costly? And then what is that reframe? How are you helping them see the, the, the problem from a different perspective that lines you up as the potential option. So those are the three elements of all of those frameworks that I think sometimes people miss. Yeah. 
It's a great summary. And in terms of actually building out that preferred future state, do you think that your existing customers are the best people to get that intel from, or should you have that own that vision yourself as uh, I don't know the founding or the marketing team or whoever's working on that messaging? Yeah, I mean, uh, it's definitely a blend of both. You know, the classic the classic quote of uh, if I'd ask my customers, I'd have built a faster horse. Um, I do I do think there's a, a bit of both that has to come to play, um, but you. Know, as you go through the process of scaling a business, going back to your market to understand unique and, and updated insight from them is really, really critical. I think there's a real danger where there's a founder insight that forms the future of your business, and mm. then you don't ground that in customer reality on a regular basis. It can become, you know, you can go off piste very, very quickly. Yeah, it's easily done though, and uh, certainly, <laughs> certainly myself, um, as I'm we've, sure we've a lot of companies. <laughs> yeah, 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 no doubt. Nice one. Um, all right. I think you've got one last pillar of the GTM strategy for us. Well, I think once you're getting to scale, then it's about optimizing. Um, it's about thinking about measurement frameworks. It's about hiring. It's about making sure that you can cope with multiple products. So once you get to any element of, of scale, so you've got some customers, you really need to think about the different elements of your business. And what I mean here is, you know, there are three key levers you can pull. There are, you know, there's new customer acquisition. So getting new customers on board. There's the monetization of all of your customers. So that's pricing and packaging and how many things, products, add-ons you can sell them. And then there's expansion. So reducing your churn, increasing your lifetime, your, your, your length of uh, length of customer, and then improving the money you're getting off them by selling them cross-sell, upsell, et cetera. And so thinking through all three of those lenses is really important. Um, and, and particularly when we, you know, we, as, as part of our an output of our business, we track core metrics across thirty thousand different subscription software companies. So we've got probably the biggest data set on on growth here, and we do see. Um, that by the time you get to any level of scale, the best companies that are growing the fastest have more than 20% of their new revenue coming from their existing install base by selling them different add-ons and, and, and upsell, whether that's increased volume, et cetera. Um, we do see that multi-product companies have between 30 and 50% higher growth rates. So when you get to any level of scale, having other things you can sell the same customer is really critical. Um, and your lifetime value increases significantly from those add-ons. And so you know, balancing all of these different ways of driving monetization from your existing and new customers is really critical and then it's about thinking where else you can go as a business so yes we can get new customers we can get more off our existing customers we can change pricing and packaging but should we be moving into new markets do we need to be expanding internationally should we be moving up market to serve larger customers and grow our annual contract value should we be moving down market to scale self-serve and and go to users or individuals um, and then you know back to the product question are there other ancillary products we can build or buy or acquire um, in order to drive higher um, average revenue from our customer so those are a range of questions that then you start to battle you have to battle with as you grow in order to manage that go to market yeah and it is a battle um especially <laughs> knowing like where i suppose it all depends on the size of your team and resource ultimately um mm -hmm. on where you assign time and resource when it comes to looking after existing customers offering them new products new services and likewise hunting down new business and how yep. much of the team's time and, and resources is set into that which was where it gets tricky i suppose it is but the necessity for growth means that we tend to always invest in new business 
rather than focusing on that existing pool of business, which it is almost always easier to upsell a happy customer to something new from you than it is to go and win a new customer. Um, yep. And you know, we've all been in scenarios where we've had a leaky funnel, where we've got people in the door and they churn after three months or 12 months. Um, and then that puts a huge pressure on winning new customers just to stay even. Um, mm. So you know, although the bias of most founders is to go and acquire new customers all the time, fixing that funnel and making sure there are there is significant lifetime value from your existing base and you're driving new revenue from your existing base i think should be the first priority because that serves you from now and into the future what are some of the most common reasons you've seen in b2b tech companies for customers churning Wow. Um, <laughs> so, um, you know, we actually have a product that helps um, automatically reduce churn. There's a, com- a, a product called Retain. Um, and so there are a whole bunch of retention specialists in our business that can talk about this in, in great depth. Um, you could talk about it. Firstly, you divide it into two things. One that is often not talked about, voluntary churn and involuntary churn. So involuntary churn is the fact that someone hasn't necessarily made a choice to cancel. They've actually just, their credit card details have expired or you know payment details have expired. Um, and in a sales-led example, maybe it's the person who bought it left, et cetera. And so you've got to deal with those first. And we've got a whole bunch of products that help people deal with involuntary churn. Then when it comes to voluntary churn, um, there, there are a bunch of reasons. Usually it will be something around you know the value that is received or the usage that they are seeing within the business. Although we've just gone through a significant, um, you know, in the SaaS space, whether we want to technically call it a recession or not, um, you know, in the SaaS space, a contraction and a, a significant reduction in capital and lots of people going through layoffs. And we've seen that in our core data set, in our core numbers, this, you know, 20, 30 billion of ARR that we track within one of our products. Um, And we've seen an increase in churn, firstly in the consumer side and D2C, and then in the business to business side as well. Um, and you know that that sometimes isn't about value and it isn't about usage. It's sometimes just about the the that the, all those businesses needing to right size their P and L and therefore cut things that are perhaps candy floss or vitamins rather than painkillers. Um, and so involuntary churn. And so involuntary churn. Then within voluntary churn, there are a bunch of things you can do there as well. Early warning signs over usage early warning signs over relationships i think getting on a plane and going visiting your customers is one of the best leading indicators of a good you know renewal point retention um but then it's also it's about making sure you're managing the process of cancellation well so when someone right. hits cancel in a dashboard you've got something like 18 seconds to get information off them or to try and change their mind and so that's another piece that that product does is walk you through you know do you want to downgrade do you want to go on a lower plan do you really want to lose all of your data are Mm. there other ways that we can save you through this process even if we're lowering our customer revenue to make sure you stay a customer nice yeah yeah some nice tips especially the involuntary i mean what you don't know you don't know i suppose and like unless you start tracking measuring and understanding these things properly you yeah. could be losing a heck of a lot of revenue that is just going out the door and you're not aware why. Yeah, I, I mean, you're summarizing r- really well kind of our core narrative as a business, which is, you know, we believe that the SaaS founders we're selling, we're selling to at Paddle, that they want to focus on their product, their customer, and mm. their team. And they don't want to focus on global sales tax compliance or on payment acceptance rates in every single region or currency management or all those things that we take care of. But, you know, even before we get to the retention issue, payment acceptance is a big, a big issue. Like one of the one of the biggest use cases we serve is if you're a business that's selling just in dollars, but you're seeing a bunch of traffic from outside the US, you are not acquiring as many customers as you could because you're not adopting to willingness to pay best practice to local currency and to local payment methods. Um, and so there's a whole bunch of things we can do there to help you automatically grow your revenue from that international user base. Yeah, 
Yeah, yeah. Good stuff. Andrew, very, very much appreciate your time. Appreciate you walking through the GTM framework that we've laid out today. Um, and yeah, it's been, it's been an enjoyable back and forth. So with that said, please do tell everyone that's tuned in more about your company, how people can learn from you and any way you'd like to direct our audience. Yeah, totally. Well, we would love to meet you at any of the events that we um, we host or sponsor. Um, we'll be in a city near you as well as at Sastock and Sasta. Um, you can find us online. I'm on LinkedIn. Please grab me there. Um, and we're at paddle.com. And really, if you're a software founder or a go-to-market leader who is trying to sell everywhere in the world and doesn't want to deal with all of the tax fraud, um, subscription management, and other financial complexities, we just take all of that away from you. Um, we've got a payment infrastructure um, where we just take a portion of each transaction and solve that all for you. Um, we've got a retention product that automatically helps you reduce churn, and we've got a pricing product that helps you build better pricing and packaging um, so that you can get more money off your customers. So all of that at paddle.com, and we've also got a really good media team we're investing in shows and documentaries about SaaS growth and there's the we, we cut a documentary about the acquisition we did last year um, with a with an award-winning independent documentary filmmaker so there's loads of good content on paddle.com and on our youtube channels legend and we'll put all of those links over at businessgrowth.marketing andrew want to applaud you there as well normally when i ask guests to, to give a idea of where to send the audience they don't lead with a problem they fix whereas you did that perfectly, um, which I do as well when I guest on shows. And uh, yeah, that's hat, hat tip to you there, sir. So yeah, we'll, we'll direct our audience to all of those links. Thanks once again for coming on. As always, if you enjoyed today's episode, a quick rating or review on your podcast channel goes a long way. And we'll catch you on the next one for more No BS, actionable B2B marketing tips to grow your business and bottom line. Catch you soon.